Welcome back to Instant Mom, navigating single foster and adoptive motherhood while attempting a go at sanity. Sorry, it's been a while since I have done an episode. I had a really bad case of laryngitis, which I seem to get a few times a year, and a cold, and I didn't have a voice at all for several days, and um, and then my voice sounded like I was a seven-pack-a-day smoker. So uh, really, it's just been the past couple of days that I have been back to feeling better. But I'm really excited for this episode because I think it's something that isn't talked about much, if at all, in adoption and foster care circles. Um, Although I am seeing a trend of more people talking about it, which is good, but it's still definitely not something that is discussed a lot. And that is the complexities of adoption and foster care and um, recognizing the sensitivities and the complexities of what is referred to as the triad. Uh, And that is that there is this relationship, this three-part relationship that is between the birth mother or the birth family, uh, the adoptee, and the um, adoptive parent. And that no matter what the circumstance was for the adoption, whether it was foster care, a private adoption, international adoption, open or closed adoption, that there is this relationship, this triad that is going to be there for the entirety of the adoptee's life, whether you want to admit it or recognize it or not. And with that relationship comes a lot of tricky considerations and a lot of difficult and uncomfortable things to think about and talk about. And I think there is a temptation in the adoption circles to make adoption seem like it is all puppy dogs and unicorns and beautiful and wonderful. And there are all these sort of pithy sayings like love makes a family, which I'll talk about later. And the reality is that adoption is all of those things. It is beautiful and wonderful and it can be puppies and unicorns. And um, adoption is an amazing thing, but there are other emotions that come with it. And adoption can only um, can only be a thing. You can only adopt or you can only be adopted because there is inherently pain and brokenness and tragedy. And that is what allows the redemption of adoption to happen. And so uh, I think a lot of people tend to gloss over that pain, that tragedy, that brokenness, and just focus on the happy ending. And it's really important that we acknowledge uh, the uncomfortable parts too. Uh, I started down this learning journey for myself uh, really just a few months ago um, when I discovered somehow that there is a there are a group of people who are anti-adoption activists, which I did not know such a thing existed. These are people who are against adoption in any and all circumstances. And I... Um, had the unpleasant experience of stumbling upon a really large Facebook group of anti-adoption activists. And um, and at first I thought that they were just talking about what I mentioned earlier, some of the um, less pleasant aspects of adoption that are real and legitimate. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this conversation is going to make me uncomfortable. Maybe it's going to challenge some of my, you know, optimistic, happy thinking, but I'm interested to hear what these people have to say. And then it became clear that they are um, just not good people. I mean, it wasn't that they said things that I didn't agree with, but they they name called and they ridiculed and they would um, find pictures of adoptive parents' 
kids and they would blast them all over social media and sort of make fun of the parents and make fun of the family. And it's just really, it was really horrific to watch. And it was sort of that interaction that led me to eventually delete my Facebook account because I just was like, I am done. I didn't realize there were really dark corners of the internet like this and super unhappy people. And I'm just kind of done with the whole thing. Um, But what I will say is that that experience, unpleasant as it was, opened my eyes to this other part of the adoption discussion that we just don't talk about. And some of what these people had to say in this group uh, was valid. Some of it was very valid. Um, The presentation was totally wrong. Obviously, the the way that they were trying to get their message across with name calling and ridicule and humiliation and, you know, using images of children without their consent was terrible. But um, some of the things they were saying were valid, not all of it. These people don't agree that adoption should happen ever. And and they base that on the fact that they think that um, no mother ever consensually agrees, uh, no mother consensually agrees to give up her child. That um, it's like a very anti-feminist thing to say too. They basically say that women are incapable of um, placing their children for an adoption and it's always coerced in some way. And therefore any kind of adoption um, is uh, kidnapping. They refer to adoptive parents as legal kidnappers. It's, it's crazy city. But again, it, it sort of exposed me to some of these other ways of thinking that are legitimate and, and um, do need to be explored by adoptive parents, even though it can be really uncomfortable to think about it. So today I'm going to talk about listening to all sides of the triad of that uh, birth family or birth parent, uh, adoptive parent and adoptee relationship. Um, Getting uncomfortable. I think things that I'm going to say might be really uncomfortable for some people to hear. And your first reaction may be to be defensive. That was my first reaction when I heard a lot of this. And after I've sat with this for several months, I've come to understand and agree with a lot of these points, which is why I'm bringing it up. Uh, But I also want to recognize that every single experience is different. I know lots of people who have been adopted who are now adults, and their experiences have completely run the gamut from um, being perfectly well-adjusted and um, swearing up and down that they have no ill feelings or trauma or anything that stemmed from the adoption to adults who have really struggled with feelings of rejection or self-esteem. Um, so every every situation is unique. So I think um, I personally question, and I would urge you to personally question anyone who tries to make blanket statements, because it's very rare that one statement can truly apply to everybody. But I think that um, more often than not, adoptees, when they are old or old enough to reflect on their experience when they're adults, do have a a wide variety of emotions about their experience um, of being adopted. And so I think it's important to recognize that. So as I mentioned before, adoption can only happen because there was pain and brokenness and tragedy. So um, one thing I'm going to talk about is is the celebrating of adoption and how well I think that's totally valid. And I celebrated Jack's adoption and I'll celebrate adoptions of future, future children that I have. We also want to be careful about how we talk about the celebration of adoption so that it doesn't cause more pain um, to the adopted child um, or to the birth family. Um, and we want to be careful not to romanticize adoption. So there's this really great excerpt that I saw that somebody shared on social media that I want to read. And, um, 
man, I thought I had the source. And now that I'm looking at it, I don't have the source. So in the show notes, I will put where I got this from so I can give this person proper credit. But here it goes. It says, as adoptive parents, we come out of the journey with the least amount of collateral damage and pain. I'm Guys, I get so emotional. I'm sorry. Okay. Phew. We are the only ones who get to walk away with a heart more intact than when we arrived. And it's easy to get swept up in the beauty of it all. Even though adoption and the way my boys came to me is my most beautiful story in my life, it may not ever feel that way to them or their birth mothers. And that will always be recognized. End quote. So I think that is so important that I'm an adoptive mom. I want to adopt again in the future. And the best day of my life was adopting Jack and learning that I would be able to adopt Jack. Like all of those milestones of knowing that Jack would be my son forever are the hands down the best days of my life. But, um, those are some of the most painful days for Jack's birth mother. And those may be painful days for Jack too, as he grows up. Um, He may not always think of it as painful, but he could have some emotion of pain with that because there was that loss. There was um, some level of rejection or what he may perceive as rejection. There is that pain. There is that trauma. There is that feeling of perceived abandonment. And so I think we just want to be really aware of that, which in my opinion, it doesn't mean that we can't celebrate adoptions. We should celebrate adoptions and um, we should make kids proud of, of their story and that the way that they um, came into this world and the way that they came to us. But it's, I, I now try to think of those things through the eyes of Jack when he is an adult and can recognize the full story, his full history and the eyes of Jack's birth parents, um, who are still in our lives and will hopefully be in our lives for as long as Jack lives. And um, I want to respect them and honor them. And I think even if the birth parents are not in the lives of the um, adoptee, I still think it's important to honor and recognize them because they are still the people who brought your child to this earth. And even if they... um, abused or neglected the child, uh, or if they were just perfectly lovely people who decided to choose adoption for their child and they're just no longer in your life, you still owe them um, a respect and an honor. And more than that, you owe your child that respect and honor. Because as much as we like to say love makes a family and love does make a family, biology still matters. And to not honor the birth family of your adopted child is to not honor your adopted child. And I think that that's where adoptees can get a sense of shame that um, might be so uh, subconscious that we don't even realize we're doing that. But if you reject the DNA that they have come from, if you reject the very people who made them, then you are inherently rejecting a part of them. And so I just think it's so important that we try to honor the birth parents as much as we possibly can, even in situations where it can be really difficult, particularly in foster care when abuse and neglect was involved. So one thing I want to talk about is going back to the celebrating. Again, it it was the worst day for the birth family or could be one of the worst days for the birth family. It could be a day that your adopted child looks back on with conflicted emotions when they are old enough to understand things. 
Um, which doesn't mean that you can't celebrate, but I really think we should try to be sensitive to the language that we're using. Um, so a lot of times I'll see people who are pursuing a private adoption um, post about how um, they're really excited because they've been matched. So for those of you unfamiliar with that terminology, that means that an expectant mother has chosen them and said, okay, if I decide to place my baby um, for adoption, I'm going to choose you guys as the adoptive parents. And so there are lots of social media accounts who um, will um, promote these celebratory messages of families who are really excited to be matched. And I get it. I get how excited they are. That is such an exciting time to think about, oh my gosh, the baby's going to be here soon. And what are they going to be like? And uh, what are they going to be like when they're older? And and thinking about their little personalities and you get excited with the little baby booties. I, I completely understand that excitement, particularly when you have been dying to be a parent for perhaps you know years and years and years. But those celebratory posts when you are matched are, um, in my opinion, uh, unintentionally insensitive because you are assuming that the expectant mother is going to place that baby with you. You are assuming that that child is yours. And until that woman signs her rights away, that baby is not yours. That baby is that mother's. And so for me, it, um, again, and this is something that I've just sort of a realization that I've only come to in the past few months. Um, so, uh, if you look back through my old social posts, I'm sure you'll see things that I'm now saying I think are insensitive because I'm, I'm trying to learn and grow as I go along here. Um, but to me, it sort of robs the expectant mother of her identity, of her agency, and um, could even be seen as very um, subconscious, unintentional coercion. Um, something else that was really interesting that I saw um, was a, uh, a birth mother who works in uh, adoption advocacy now, and she's still pro-adoption, but really talks a lot about ethical adoptions, said that one thing that she thinks is... Um, very coercive, even though she doesn't think parents do it intentionally, is when um, adoptive parents or prospective adoptive parents will use their own biological children or other adoptive children in posts. So things that say like they'll have the little kid holding up a sign that says, waiting for my best friend or waiting for my little sister. Um, and she said that she felt that was coercive because if you are um, a young expectant mother, and oftentimes the expectant mothers are young and maybe scared and feeling like they don't have a lot of choices or they don't have a lot of support, and maybe you're still trying to decide, should I parent my child? Should I choose adoption for them? And you've, you've matched, maybe you've matched with a family, you've identified a family and said, okay, if I decide to place my child for adoption, you're the family that I've selected. But again, you still have, and in a lot of states, um, several days after you give birth to make that decision. And in fact, once you sign um, the papers, you have several days after you sign to then even take back your decision, um, just to make sure that you're really thinking this through. So, you know, if you're still trying to make that decision and you see a post from these parents and you see their little kid and their little kid is so excited to get a, a little sister or a little brother you might be influenced to make a decision that you don't want to make because you don't want to let that child down or you don't want to let that family down. And so even though I know that the prospective adoptive parents are not meaning to be coercive, they're just legitimately excited and they think it's cute, 
it can put pressure on the expectant mother that is unfair because now she not only has to worry about disappointing um, the one or two adults that she would be placing the child with, but now she has to worry about, oh my gosh, I'm going to disappoint this, this little kid or multiple little kids in the family who have been excited about this. So I thought that was a really interesting point that using siblings in adoption advertising or in adoption celebrations before it is all signed, sealed, and delivered legally can be an act of coercion. Um, I think when we think about foster care, oftentimes when you see a foster parent with a placement, um, they'll have uh, posts that say like, oh my gosh, we're so in love with this little baby. We'd love to keep them forever. Uh, or we really hope we get to keep them. And I know I was guilty of that with Jack. I don't know that I posted it uh, on social media. I might have been more aware than to post it, although I could be proven wrong. I'm not really sure, but I would definitely say it. Oh my gosh, I really hope I get to keep Jack. And I would acknowledge at the time that that was wrong. (laughs) Um, And I don't think I was actively, well, I know I wasn't actively rooting for his parents to fail, but I did really, I was so in love with Jack. I, I really wanted him to be mine forever. And that's a human emotion that um, we might not be able to stop, of course. You fall in love with these kids, and especially when they've been with you for a long time and the case is inching along, um, you, you start to become very attached. And you do picture your life with them, and you do want them to be part of your family forever. But by saying things, especially publicly, like, I hope we get to keep them forever, we'll be so lucky if they get to be ours, if you were a birth parent who was reading that post and you're trying to overcome an addiction, you're trying to take some anger management classes, you're trying to find a good job and get a roof over your head, like how demoralizing would that be to read that this foster parent is hoping they get to keep your kid forever? Even though the foster parent may not mean I'm rooting against you, I hope you don't get your act together. Even though they may not mean that, as a as the as the bio parent that would probably be so demoralizing to hear and it's it's taking possession over a child that isn't yours fully yet right so i think foster parents of course should love on those children and form secure attachments and be ready to be there forever if if that's what happens in the case and of course you can't help what you think <laughs> you know thinking that you want to keep them forever and maybe even hoping But I think at least what we say publicly and what we think internally can and should be two different things. And so saying those things publicly um, can have a really demoralizing effect and send the wrong message, particularly because foster care, the adoption, or I'm sorry, the goal through foster care is not adoption. The goal through foster care is always reunification. And so um, we want to do everything we can publicly to show the public, to show other foster families, to show the birth families that they're watching us on social media, and let's be honest, um, they probably are, um, that we are supporting them and that we love their child as if they were our own, but that we recognize they are not ours. Um, So another thing that I think we need to be really careful of. Another sort of word issue is you often see love makes a family. And I've actually used this before. I think uh, in Jack's adoption photos, I use that caption, love makes a family. And my issue with that isn't that it's wrong. It's totally right. Um, You know, I fully believe that there is no way I could love Jack 
oh God, I get emotional. <laughs> I could love Jack anymore if he came from me biologically. Like I just love him so much. I cry <laughs> when I talk about how much I love him. So I do believe love makes a family. But by saying love makes a family, it has some implications that maybe are unintentional, but are still very real. And those implications and those insinuations um, are that um, that the, the, the birth family didn't have love and therefore they couldn't make a family. Well, that's not true. Very rarely is that true, no matter how um, neglectful or abusive uh, in the case of foster care. Um, a birth family may have been, I think, um, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the birth parents still love the child, even if they are extremely broken and messed up themselves. Um, so implying love makes a family is implying that uh, the birth family didn't have love and so they couldn't make a family. But it also implies that biology isn't important. Love makes a family, so we don't need biology. But biology is important. And I think we only take it for granted, um, those of us who haven't had to consider that before. Um, you know, if you had no biological link to your past, I think most people, again, not all, um, but I think most people have some degree of curiosity or even from a practical standpoint to understand your health history, biology matters, or to see um, your image reflected in somebody else or to understand where you get your habits or your quirks. Biology does matter. And again, we do our adopted children a disservice if we try to imply even unintentionally subconsciously, whatever, um, that biology does not matter. It does matter. And if it matters to them and it's something that they want to explore and something they want to learn more about, then we need to fully support that. And even really minor things like saying love makes a family can give them the impression that your biology doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. And I'm not really open to you wanting it to matter. And we always want our kids to feel like they are supported um, in whatever degree of curiosity they might have about their birth family or whatever degree of connection that they want to make. So, you know, I think my takeaway is that when I, when or if I say something like love makes a family, it's always with that disclaimer of love makes a family and biology can matter too, right? Like I understand that that doesn't make as cute of a poster or a t-shirt to wear, but we don't want to unintentionally send um, a signal that uh, biology, that their birth history, that their birth family is irrelevant or is something that we um, don't want them to or won't allow them to explore or embrace. So the other thing that I want to talk about is money and um that whole side of adoption, which is something that frankly really has started to anger me so much. So I've always been annoyed and angered that adoption, private adoption is so expensive. The average private adoption is around $40,000. It's quite common that you see private adoption situations that are in the $50,000 range. And it's virtually unheard of to do a private adoption for less than like $25,000. And that's like the super, super, super cheap end of it. Um, there are a lot of things that make up those fees. Um, there are fees that you have to pay an attorney for the adoptive parent. You have to pay an attorney for the, um, the birth mother, or you at least have to offer, and most of the time they accept. Um, there are um, 
fees that the birth mother can ask for for living expenses. Uh, Most states have a cap. I think in Indiana, it's $5,000. Other states, it's more or less. So there are are those fees that you're paying. Um, You have to pay for counseling and medical services if your birth mother needs it, and it's not covered by whatever insurance plan she may be under. Um, And then there are agency fees, and this is what gets me. Uh, There are really big adoption agencies out there. Um, there are, there's one in Indianapolis, Kirsch and Kirsch, and um, they're mega agencies. And it is essentially a, um, a transactional deal. If you have enough money, you'll get a baby. <laughs> um, and their average adoption is anywhere between thirty dollars and $50,000. And their average wait time is a year or less. Um, because you know, you pay them a lot of money and they will search far and wide all over the country for a baby for you. And I suppose in theory, um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. However, I think the fees are exorbitant and it is becoming a for-profit industry. So to me personally, um, I, it's nothing against the people at Kirsch and Kirsch. I'm sure there are super lovely people who work there. But in thinking of the structure of how they are profiting off of adoption, that to me feels really, really icky and really, really wrong. I understand that lawyers and agency adoption professionals have to pay their bills and send their kids to daycare and save for their children's college. And obviously they need to make a living and and be paid. And um, that's only right. But I think that um, adoption agencies should legally have to operate in a non-for-profit um, uh, model. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense that you can make a profit off of placing a child with a family. And I think that's also where you can enter into a lot of intentional or unintentional coercion as well. Um, I was talking to a woman who used to be with a um, big adoption agency here in Indianapolis, and she would help facilitate matches. So she would um, actively go out for and um, advertise for expectant women who were thinking of placing their children for an adoption. And when they would have um, uh, prospective adoptive parents come in and they would pay their crazy hefty fee. And then it's basically like recruiting, right? You go out and you place advertisements and you hope to attract expectant mothers and you match up those expectant mothers with the families and the baby's born and the mother signs and you make a match and everybody exchanges money. Um, It very much is like talent acquisition in a tech scene, basically. And she said that she did that for 15 years. And um, then after a while, some of the things that she said she saw um, made her really uncomfortable. So not only was she uncomfortable with the operating model of these agencies, and most agencies do not operate in a non-for-profit model. Most of them are for-profit. Um, although there are some non-for-profits, but they're very rare when you find them. And there are some agencies that do a sliding income scale. So if a family wants to adopt, they will base all of their fees off of the family's income rather than just saying, well, it's 50 grand, sorry. Um, so they exist, but there aren't that they're certainly not the majority. Um, so she just got really kind of grossed out by all of this. And she would see, she told me a story of um a family who, you know, came to the agency, wanted a, a, a baby, and um, they ended up uh, being matched with a, an expectant mom in California, because again, they search all over the country. And um, 
this expectant mother um, was trying to figure out which family she'd like to choose. So you, you know, you, you look at this profile book the families put together and there are photos of their home and their family and they write these letters to sort of describe the kind of life they have and how they would raise the children and then the, the expectant mother can pick a family. And she said, I would, I saw this family fly out there at the advice of the attorney and they took the birth mom out to these fancy dinners and they took her shopping and helped her like pick out things saying like, you know, we really want you to have a a part of this baby's life if you decide to place with us. So let's go shopping for the baby's nursery. And like, we want you to help us design the baby's nursery. So if you place with us, you know, the baby will grow up in this nursery that, you know, you've picked out for him. And if you don't place with us, like you can keep this stuff, it's all yours. So, you know, I think I'll give the birth or I'll give the, the adoptive parents the benefit of the doubt. And, and say, well, maybe they thought they really were doing, doing this woman a service, particularly by saying, if you even if you decide to keep the child, this stuff is all yours and it will help you out. But that's coercion. <laughs> like You're literally uh, whining and dining, minus the wine part. Um, this expectant mother, in the hopes of growing a relationship, that she'll choose you. And when you're talking about exchanging a human out of that transaction, it just gets really, really icky really fast. So I have a really big problem with the for-profit adoption industry. There is no reason why an adoption should cost $50,000. My adoption with Jack cost me less than $4,000. And that was on the very, very high end because we had some extra um, steps we had to go through. Usually an adoption through foster care is like $1,000 or it's even completely free. So the legal fees alone, and I know this because I've researched this extensively, just the legal fees alone for a private adoption are about $8,000. And that's legitimate, right? You're paying a lawyer by the hour to, to draw up these contracts. So there's no reason why an adoption should cost more than like $15,000. You figure $8,000, give or take for the legal fees, and then you add on the birth mother expenses um, and, and medical costs, and that should sort of be what it is. Um, it shouldn't be a $50,000 transaction. That's just so people can profit and it's wrong. Um, but then there's also the idea of if, if, if prospective adoptive families are consistently able to come up with $50,000 cash, and let's just say that it is cash because you can't, this is not an extended payment plan. You don't get to pay over a year or 10 years of the child's lifetime. This money all has to be completely paid and transferred to the agencies before you are allowed to legally adopt the child. They essentially hold the child hostage until you fork over the cash. Um, if families can come up with that money, it makes me wonder if the if the expectant mother had that money, would she have decided to parent? Now, <laughs> this is where we get into a really tricky situation because um, this is something that the anti-adoption groups were saying as well. They said no woman would ever give up her child. It's almost always a matter of finances. And if you just gave the expectant mother that $50,000, 100% of the time, they would say they don't want to place their child for adoption and you wouldn't need adoption. And that's why we're anti-adoption. Now, I think that's super reductionist and it doesn't give women credit and it doesn't um, give any consideration to the various reasons why a woman does not want to become a parent. Um, I am not a dummy and I'm sure that finances play a factor in nearly every um, adoption in terms of why the woman is thinking about adoption. But I think it's pretty rare when that would be the only consideration. 
Um, you know, there were certainly times in my life where even if I had won the lottery, I still would have said, no, I don't want a parent. Nope, absolutely not. Um, so there are reasons other than finances for why women place their child for adoption. However, I think we would be naive to think that finances don't play a role. Of course they play a role. I think the reason you hear more than anything um, is the, the, the expectant mother says, I just don't have the money to provide for this child or my family won't support me and I don't have the money to support myself um, or I need to get an education and I don't have the money to pay for childcare while, while I would get an education or my parents would kick me out of the house and I don't have the money to live on my own. Like Finances are usually one of the many, many reasons the many, many complex reasons why a woman is considering adoption. And so I don't think that it would fix everything if you just said, okay, well, here is a check for $50,000 and um, and all your problems will be solved now and you can parent this child. There are still lots of other uh, uh, challenges with being a parent and lots of other reasons why women wouldn't want a parent, even if finances were not an issue. But it still is really tough to swallow when you see um, prospective adoptive parents holding fundraisers and setting up GoFundMes and asking for donations to raise $50,000 cash to get their child. When you've got to wonder, what if we gave those expectant mothers $50,000 cash and said, you know what, here's 50 grand. This will at least for the next year let you be able to figure out a plan Uh, you can save up, you can sock it away, you can get your housing, you can, you can, you know, establish yourself, this will pay for school, this will pay for your daycare. I really, you really have to wonder how many women would have decided to parent and parented successfully and happily if they had a $50,000 infusion, rather than saying, I can't support myself. So for that and many other reasons, I'm going to choose adoption. And then the $50,000 goes to the transaction of the child, essentially. And I think that's really uncomfortable for people to hear. Um, and I certainly don't think that prospective adoptive parents are are doing this with any ill intention. Like, I am positive they're not thinking, well, screw you. Sorry, you don't have the finances to parent your kid. I'm going to come up with 50 grand and take that kid away from you. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I have nothing but the utmost respect for adoptive parents. I am an adoptive parent. I want to adopt again in the future. But I think that's something we really have to think about. What if instead of holding adoption fundraisers, and what if instead of having adoption loans, and what if the churches, instead of matching your adoption fundraising, which is something that a lot of churches do, they will um, give you a grant um, for whatever amount you're able to raise yourself to fund your adoption. What if those churches gave that money to the pregnant women who don't have support and who are faced with this pregnancy that they're not sure how to handle? Like, wouldn't that, how, how much would that change the equation? And that's also tough to say, uh, not only because it, it's, it, it really makes people think in an uncomfortable way, but it affects my life too. Um, I won't get into all of the details of Jack's situation because I want to respect the privacy of his birth mother, but I do wonder if somebody said, you know what? 
you don't have to worry about finances for the next two years of your life. You worry about getting better. You worry about getting healthy. You worry about getting clean. The money is out of the picture. I wonder if that would have changed things for her. And I wonder if Jack would be with her today. I don't, I think in her case, it it was so complicated and there were lots of other things happening that I won't get into for privacy reasons to where I don't think that would have changed the outcome at all. But I think it's something we have to think about. And so the, the, the insane amounts of money that are being thrown around, I think are oftentimes misdirected when they should be aimed at supporting the woman if she wants to parent. Um, and I think that no one should be allowed to um, eke out even a dollar of a profit um, if they want to go into the adoption field. So that is my soapbox that I will now step off of. <laughs> um, so those are just some things that I, I really wanted to raise. I think a lot of them are very uncomfortable. A lot of them really challenge some things like, oh, well, I... I I was really well-intentioned when I said love is a family or or love makes a family. And I was really well-intentioned when we were excited about being matched. And and I get that. Like, I think everybody in the adoption community, for the most part, is super well-intentioned. And they're thinking about adoption because they believe it's the right thing to do. And they believe they're helping the child. And to some extent, they believe they're helping the mother. But um but I, I've seen it become this cultural thing, especially on social media, where it's portrayed as this heroic unicorn rainbow. Oh my gosh, this child has a future now because of you who swept in and saved this child kind of thing. And we completely forget about the birth family and what they might need or what they're thinking. And if they were coerced even unintentionally and how these messages are um, are sitting with them. And and I think we often completely forget about the adopted child when they grow up. What will they think when they see all of this? Um, and I, I, I don't know. I wonder, you know, if, uh, if an adopted child grows up and sees like, wow, okay, so you, you really celebrated when my birth mom picked you and you held this like a series of fundraisers to come up with the $50,000 to adopt me. But why didn't you help my mom out financially so that maybe she could have kept me and not had her heart broken. You know, I I think that's a valid thing for someone to think about and and to question. And I think we have to um, make decisions. And I think we have to say and do things always thinking that way with that, that responsibility to the child when they're older and to the birth family. Like, can we look that child and their birth family in the eye and say, yeah, like I I really wanted you and and I really loved you, but did I do everything I could have to support your birth mother? Am I 210% sure there was nothing we did that even unintentionally or subconsciously coerced her or made her stick with a choice that she wasn't super comfortable with because she was afraid of disappointing us? Um, so I think we just need to get uncomfortable with these conversations and really, um, apply some tough, hard, tricky, (laughs) critical thinking to all of this. Um, and I think if you are considering adoption, 
If you are an adoptive parent now, if you just want to learn more about the issue, I think more than anything, we have to listen to the voices of adoptees and we have to listen to the voices of birth mothers. And there are some really insightful birth mothers and adoptees who, um, are supportive of adoption and and think it can be a wonderful, beautiful thing, but will challenge you to really think through some of the things that we find acceptable and to look at it from a different perspective. And so in the show notes, I will put some of those accounts that I like to follow that have caused me to think a lot about this. And, and I would really advise you to give them a listen too, because their voices really matter. And at the end of the day, those are the voices that you're going to have to deal with your whole life. What does an adoptee think when they're older? And that birth family that's going to be there forever, how do they make sense of this? Because again, there is only adoption because there is grief and trauma and loss. And to celebrate an adoption without thinking of and dealing with that grief and trauma and loss is setting everybody in that triad up for failure and more pain. So that is my sort of Debbie Downer podcast for the day. Um, But hopefully it made you guys think. I'd like to know um, if there are any other birth mom accounts that you guys follow um, or any other really good resources that um, you've come across and thinking about the triad and how we triad, triad, I don't know, guys, how do we say it? And how we sort of honor all points of those relationships. So as always, feel free to shoot me a message, elizabeth.friedland at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at efriedland and let me know what you think. I'm not quite sure what I'm planning for the next episode. So if there are any topics that you would like to hear about, um, please let me know and I will try to work those in. Thanks for listening as always.